Why don't we open up to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 7. If you've been reading through the book of Hebrews up to this point, you've likely been able to make some sense of things, I hope. I know that sometimes when we read Scripture, it feels like we're being dropped on another planet, but the book of Hebrews, it starts out and it's accessible. It it starts out by talking about angels, and you're like, hey, I have a pretty good idea about what an angel is. The Bible's full of passages about angels. Like, we can read about that and look in the Bible about all the things that have to do with angels. They might be a little mysterious, but hey, I know what an angel is. And then it goes on in the book of Hebrews to talk about Moses. And I, you're like, hey, I've got a pretty good idea about who Moses is. I went to Sunday school. I learned about the Exodus. I learned about Moses and the signs and all that in Egypt. And so, yeah, the burning bush, I know all there is. I can read in the book of Exodus about Moses and, and beyond. Moses has a lot of press in the Bible, right? And then he goes on to talk about the Israelites going into the promised land. You're like, look, I know that story too. I know that they were saved. The Red Sea parted, and they, they got the law on Mount Sinai, and they went to the edge of the promised land. They didn't want to go in, so then they wandered. I get that. I could read the book of Numbers. I could read the book of Deuteronomy. I could read the book of Exodus. I can read. I know that's all part of that. And then it gets into the book, gets talks about falling away, and you're like, look, it might be hard to realize and all this, but like I've, the Bible talks about people falling away, and I've seen people fall away, and I kind of understand that. And then you come to chapter 7. And it's full of talking about Melchizedek. And you're like, Melchizedek who? And so, you're, well, like, it's, it's, like, it's like I said, sometimes when you read the Bible, it's like whale watching. You know, you get out into a nice pot of whales, and everybody, psh, psh, and you're like, oh my gosh, there are all these whales around. And then they all take a deep breath, and they go down. And you're like, where'd they go? And that's like where we are in the book of Hebrews. We, we've been whale watching, and now we're like, where'd he go? Where did the author go with this? And we got a whole chapter of asking the question, where did he go? Why Melchizedek? And you hear about Melchizedek, and you might be a little puzzled. You might not know. And if you don't know the name, you are not alone, all right? So what I want to do today is I just want to talk about I want to talk about this, this passage, and I don't, we are going to get into the weeds a little bit, so hang on, but I also want to emerge out and ask, why is the author making such a big deal about this kind of shadowy figure of Melchizedek? Why does it matter? And what I will say is that the payoff in this passage, on the front side and the back side, there are some deep truths about who God is and who, how you relate to him that we want to hammer home hard today. And so let's open up and let's see. So Melchizedek, chapter 7 and verse 1. Now, if you are asking the question, why Melchizedek and who is Melchizedek, you are not alone. Moses gets a lot of press in the Old Testament. The Exodus generation gets a lot of press. You can read about Joshua. Joshua has a whole book with his name on it. Melchizedek has five verses in the Bible before the book of Hebrews. Only five verses in the whole of the Old Testament. There are only five verses. So if you're like, look, I read my Bible in a year and I don't remember seeing Melchizedek, it might have been because your eyes skipped over some verses or you read about it and you forgot about it. There's only five verses. So there's two places where Melchizedek is mentioned. One is Genesis 14. We're going to look at that in just a second. And in Psalm 110, verse 4, five verses. There's four verses in the book of Genesis and one verse in Psalm 110 that talk about 
Melchizedek. And you might be like, look, I, I should be a better student of the Bible. I should know my Bible better. I should be very familiar about who Melchizedek is. But even the author of Hebrews, when he gets to Melchizedek, in chapter 5, he says, hey, I want to talk about Jesus being a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And then he pauses and he says, all right, we got a lot to say about Jesus and Melchizedek, but you guys all need to wake up for a second. I got to wake you up. And so he goes into a long thing about falling away and all this stuff. So even the people who originally heard this message, they like were like, who? Melchizedek? So all this to say, what we want to do is we want to note that there are some significant things about Melchizedek and how Jesus follows after Melchizedek in a significant way and how it makes Jesus greater than regular high priests by talking about being a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. I promise we are going to, this is going to be meaningful. You're like, I don't know if that is, Pastor Craig, but hang with me for just a second. Let's look at chapter 7, verse 1. It says this, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to Abraham, to him Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. He is first by translation of his name king of righteousness and then also king of Salem, that is the king of peace. Now the first four verses of Hebrews chapter 7, and we're just going to make some comments through Hebrews chapter 7 today and note what the author of Hebrews thinks is important here. But the very first thing, the first four, four verses of the book of Hebrews chapter 7 is about a commentary on Genesis chapter 14 where Melchizedek makes his one and only appearance in the narrative of Scripture. And here's some context about where that is in Genesis 14. You don't have to turn there. We're going to get there in just a second, but if you want to, uh, Genesis 14 verse 17, here's some context. Back in the day, there's a warlord named, I'm going to try not to butcher it, Shadar Laomer. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. They, they don't teach this in seminary. Um, and he has a number of kings that are kind of under his protectorate. Half of those kings, the good guys, they rebel against Shadar Lamer. Just, I'm just going to say, he sounds like cheddar cheese, right? I don't, I'm, okay, all right, no jokes, cut that one out of the next one, okay. So half of the kings rebel against him. So he takes the other bu bunch of kings and attacks these, other, these kings that have rebelled against him. Now among these kings that have rebelled against this, this warlord, among them all is Abraham's nephew Lot. Okay, do you guys remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot? Well, Lot was Abraham's nephew. Abraham's one of the good guys, okay? So here we go. This is the background. So the enemy forces, Chedar Laomer, his forces seize, they defeat all these kings and seize Abraham's nephew Lot and all of his possessions. They take him into custody. Now Abraham is like, hey, I'm going to stay out of this whole thing until... Lot gets taken captive. And so Abraham says, all right, let's get all these Bedouins together. I got some, I got some pretty nasty guys in my Bedouin cohort, and we're just going to grab these guys. We got about 300, and we're going to go after 
these kings, and we're going to take back what belongs to us. And so Abraham does, it doesn't say exactly how, but it says he pursues them, he overtakes them, and he takes back the captives and all the spoil that they had taken, okay? That's the background of what happens here. And what happens is because Abraham is returning victorious with all of the spoil and with all of these captives that he has now freed, he's greeted by the remaining kings that did not perish that rebelled against Shedarlamer. And among them, this is what we get in chapter 14, Genesis 14 and verse 17, this is what happens. This is, this is the reunion after Abraham defeats these kings and returns with all the spoil and all the captives. 1417. After his return from the defeat of Chedar Laamer, the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, which is the king's valley, which is today where the Dead Sea is. Okay? And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine because he was a priest of the Most High God. And he blessed Abraham and said, blessed be Abram. Abram was still called Abram by this time. He'll be called Abraham in the next chapter. But he's blessed, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. All right, that seems like enough to build a huge Christological argument upon, right? Okay, let's, so let's, let's hear, what, is, what does the author of Hebrews want to make of this? So let's, a couple things about this, this person, Melchizedek. The first thing to note about Melchizedek is Melchizedek is a king. Melchizedek is a king. His name, his name, Melchizedek, Melech Sadiq, means the king of righteousness. That's what his name means, the king of righteousness, Melchizedek. Okay, the king of righteousness. But it also says he is also called the king of Salem or the king of Shalom, which means the king of peace. Now, the king of righteousness might be about his character, that the word righteousness also means justice, that Melchizedek was probably known as a king who administered justice appropriately, that he wasn't, he wasn't angry or mean, he didn't overstep his bounds. He was a just ruler. And so he earns the name the king of righteousness, the king of justice, and that's what he's called. But it also says he's the king of peace. Now, this, this is, it doesn't say this in the text. This is I, conjecture. And I'll, I'll tell you, there's all kinds of places in here where there's going to be all kinds of conjecture, and I'll let you know when that is. So when it says that he's the king of shalom, what I think that probably means, and what other scholars think it probably means, is that the, the king of Shalom means that the region he is in is in the region of Salem. Now, why is that significant? Because later on, when David becomes the king, he will make the capital of Israel the, in the Eru Shalom, in the city of Shalom, which is called Jerusalem. The word Jerusalem literally means the city of peace which is ironic these days, right? And it's always been a little ironic. It's always been aspirational that, that one day this would be the city of peace, the Eru Shalom. And so part of this might be something of the effect of that this king of righteousness 
reigns in a region where eventually you're going to have the temple, you're going to have the tabernacle, you're going to have this place, the capital of Israel, the city of peace. So there's a little bit going on here about that. So Melchizedek is, first of all, a king. But the second thing we see about Melchizedek is that Melchizedek is also a priest. Now, just first of all, if you're Jewish and you hear that, you got to let that sink in because in, in Israel, the offices of prophet and priest and king were always kind of segmented out. So no one could have all that power. Priests gave access to God. Kings ruled. Prophets spoke on behalf of God. And what we see in the Old Testament is all of those offices tend to be kept separate Kind of a division of power in, in many ways. But Melchizedek is a king, but also a priest. It's really interesting because later on when, the, when Saul becomes the king, one of the things he tries to do be, for battle is he tries to present a sacrifice for the, the nation before Samuel, who's a priest, can come and offer it. And he gets chastised. Hey, look, you're the king. You're not a priest. You leave the priesting stuff to the priests. And so one of the most important things about Melchizedek is Melchizedek is one of the figures of the Old Testament who both has the office of king and priest. We're going to see examples of prophet priests, like Samuel is a prophet priest. We're going to see examples of prophet kings, like David. David is a prophet king. But we're never going to see prophet, priest, king until Jesus comes. Jesus will come along and he will consolidate all of those offices. But until then, you hear about Melchizedek and he's a king priest. That's saying something. So that's one of the reasons why the author of Hebrews is interested in Melchizedek. Are you guys with me so far? I mean, this is significant. It is interesting because he, as a king, at this, this reunion and this victory celebration, he brings out bread and wine which a lot of people are going to make a lot of, especially with the Jesus imagery going on. Okay, hang with me. So Melchizedek is a king, but he's also a priest. What is also interesting about his priesthood, and I, don't, I can't totally wrap my mind around this, because in the Old Testament, you've got Israel, and God sets Israel apart. Moses, covenant name of God, burning bush, let my people go. And he, he creates a covenant people out of Israel. And he says, okay, if you're going to worship me, you got to worship this way. And he gives all these regulations for worship. And he, the tabernacle and Aaronic and Levitical priests and all this stuff. But back up 100 years, 200 years, 300 years, 400 years, 500 years, this guy Melchizedek, was worshiping the one true God before any of that had ever been revealed. Like, with the nation of Israel, it's always like, we worship the one true God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. Everyone else worships pagan gods. But here we have an example of a, pre a pre-Abraham worship of Yahweh, a pre-Moses worship of Yahweh, a pre-Israel worshiper of Yahweh. Someone who worships the one true God before God had revealed all of this other stuff about himself. And so Melchizedek 
four verses, but you could see why maybe people are super interested in what this guy is. He's a priest king who knows the one true God before God had revealed himself to the nation of Israel. Who is this guy? And that kind of stirs the imagination, not only of the author of Hebrews, but many others. So he's a real king, but most importantly, a real priest. Not of some pagan god, but of the one true God before anything had ever been revealed particularly about him. So, very significant. In Psalm 110, Melchizedek is mentioned again. And this was a, a psalm that was, mentioned at the, or that was read at the enthronement of the king of Israel. And it says in Psalm 110, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So again, the idea of, in Psalm 110, of a priest king to come was something that was on the mind of the nation of Israel. But it won't be a Levitical priest king. It'll be a Melchizedekian priest king. Are you guys with, I mean, I feel like I'm just saying things here, but it's just like, whew, I can imagine this is a lot to, to take in. So, here, let's see, if we can, let's see if we can make it even more confusing. Okay. So now there's a bunch of things that the author of Hebrews is going to say about Melchizedek. And I'm going to walk through them. And this is going to begin in 7-1. But I, I, before I say this, before we look at the author of Hebrews and like, what in the world is he, where is he getting all this stuff? I want, to, I want to say a little caveat. And that is, between the time of the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament is what um, some Christians call the intertestamental period. Or if you're Jewish, you call it Second Temple Judaism. Okay. You guys with me? The end of the old. So, and, and there's, it's like four, what we call 400 years of silence. There's no scripture that is written during this time. The end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. Okay? At the end of the Old Testament, the Persians are in charge. By the time Jesus shows up and John the Baptist show up, the Romans are in charge. You miss the Greeks altogether. There's no revelation during that time. But during that time, Jewish writers take an immense interest in minute characters in the Old Testament that we don't know a lot about. And they expand on the traditions. I'll give you one example. Do you know who the person Enoch is? Okay, those of you who know who Enoch is, congratulations. There's one verse in the Bible that talks about Enoch. He lives before Noah, and it basically says that he was righteous, and he walked with God, and that he was taken up, and he walked with God. Okay, now, what it implies is that Enoch doesn't die, he's just translated into heaven, and so this person Enoch becomes a really interesting figure for other writers, Jewish writers, to expand on this tradition. And there are Jewish writers that write the book called First Enoch. And if you didn't get enough in First Enoch, you get the sequel, Second Enoch, and if that's not enough, you get a third Enoch. And it's, so, it's this really interesting idea about expanding on things we don't know a lot about, like who this Enoch guy was, what was it like before the flood, and it kind of expands these traditions, and it has a lot of weird traditions and weird ideas about angels and all this stuff they call the watchers. And it's, anyway, super interesting. It's kind of like uh, historical fiction that we might read today. Okay? And it's a huge burgeoning enterprise in Second Temple Judaism or in the intertestamental period. Now, Enoch is one of those figures, but guess who is one of the other figures that gets a lot of press in that 400 years of silence? Melchizedek. 
a ton of people start talking about Melchizedek. And one of the reasons why is because as they're rebuilding the temple, the second temple in Jerusalem, and there's a new priesthood rising up in that, in that temple, they're a bunch of bad dudes. They're a bunch of people who are in it for themselves. They're a bunch of people who sell access to God and make a huge profit for themselves. It's one of the reasons why when Jesus comes on the scenes, he's so critical of the leaders of the temple because they keep people out for their own gain. They start padding the stats for their own wealth. And by that time, Jesus was not the only person who was kind of critical of that. John the Baptist is offering forgiveness of sins down at the Jordan River. And you could hear the priest saying, the only place where you could have your sins forgiven is in the temple. And John the Baptist is like, hey, come on down here. I'll forgive your sins. Right? Like, that's what we call an anti-temple movement. And Jesus offers forgiveness of sins. Remember when they bring the paralytic down in the middle of the house? And he says, he doesn't say get up and walk. They tear the roof. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. And everybody's like, who is this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And where else can it be forgiven except the temple? And so Jesus is critical of that group too. But one of the people that are most critical, which we don't read a lot about in the New Testament, are the people who, the former priests, who get up from Jerusalem and go down to the Dead Sea and they live in a community called the Qumran Community. Man, you guys are getting a lot of great stuff here. Okay, okay. The Qumran community. This is where the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. And you can go there today. Some of us did go there. And you can go there. You can see the caves where they found these scrolls. And one of the caves, what they call Cave 11. They found a bunch of stuff in Cave 11. They found one scroll. And it had all this weird stuff about Melchizedek in it. And the document is now called 11Q Melchizedek. 11 for Cave 11, Q for Qumran, and it's about Melchizedek. All right, that's more than you needed to know. 11Q Melchizedek, okay? But in that document, it says Melchizedek is actually the archangel Michael. And that at the end of all things, he will come back and judge everybody. He will administer the justice of God. Now look, this is not, that's not scripture, all, this, all, all I want to say about this, why is there a huge chapter in the middle of the book of Hebrews that's throwing me off my mojo, right, that nobody gets? It's like landing on Mars. Why is it in there? Because in the day and time of the author of Hebrews, there is so much speculation about this person Melchizedek, but there's also so much hope that God will somehow reform the priesthood and offer a king that does justice and can lead people into the presence of God, who can rule over the city of peace. There's so much hope and expectation. And so the author says, well, I'm going to throw my lot into this and see what comes out. What do I think about Melchizedek? Why is he so important? And so Hebrews plays off of this kind of the shadowy figure of Melchizedek to make a point. Now, here's the deal. There's a lot of ideas about Melchizedek. Author of Hebrews writes some things. The Qumran community thought some things. The people who wrote First Enoch, they thought something about him. I mean, in the book of First Enoch, Melchizedek is, this woman gets pregnant, miraculously, 
and out comes a three-year-old Melchizedek who's fully dressed and is like, shalom, right? That, doesn't, that didn't happen, okay? It's all, okay, speculate. If you guys want to know how that all happened, I mean, you can talk to your mom and dad about that. Okay, all right. Now, even some in the Christian tradition, the evangelical Christian tradition, would call Melchizedek showing up in Genesis chapter 14 with bread and wine, some would call him a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. I want to say I don't believe that, okay? And I'm not saying that if you do, you're like a heretic. I'm just saying there's lots of discussion about that. I don't think that this is, a, this is a Christophany. I don't think that Melchizedek is a Christophany. I think Melchizedek is a real king. He's a real person, probably in the region of Jerusalem, probably earns the name that he's just, but he is a priest. He is a worshiper of the one true God, but just a human being. But the author of Hebrews is going to play off of this Melchizedek coming out of nowhere to make some points. Now listen to what he says, 7.3. Look at 7.3. He says this about Melchizedek. Melchizedek is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever. Okay. The author of Hebrews is taking this kind of shadowy appearance of Melchizedek coming out of nowhere and not hearing the end of his story. There's a little bit of a tradition in Jewish interpretation that if it doesn't happen in Torah, it doesn't happen in real life. And so if Melchizedek, it's like, where's my Hamlet people? There's Hamlet here, right? Hamlet, no one here from Sursum Corda. Thank you. They did a Hamlet play. One of the cool things about Hamlet is there's these two dudes called Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. You guys know this? right? Okay. And, and, and they, they're friends of Hamlet, but they end up getting killed in the end. And Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, they kind of come on the scene, and then they step off. And then they come on the scene, and then they step off. Someone in, um, in the 20th century wrote another play called Rosencrantz and Guildenstern Are Dead. And they tell the story of Hamlet from those two's perspective. So they're always on stage, and every once in a while, the characters of Hamlet come on and off. Okay. All right. There's my English literature lesson for the day. But with this in mind, Melchizedek is kind of off stage. No one knows where he is. And then he comes on stage, and they're like, oh, he has no mother, no father, no genealogy. It's not that he doesn't have a mother or father or a genealogy. We just don't know what it is, and Torah doesn't tell us what it is. Therefore, the author of Hebrews is like, hey, we're going to play on this shadowiness because one of the things about being a priest in the nation of Israel is you have to have the right genealogy. You got to be a Levite. You got to be a particular person. You have to have the right mom and dad. It's all about nepotism back in that, with that. But with, the, with Melchizedek, we don't need to know who his father is or his mother is or where he came from or what his genealogy is because his priesthood is built on something different. And that's what the author of Hebrews is trying to do here. Now, you're like, I don't know what to say. And I'm like, get in line. There's all kinds of thoughts about Melchizedek. I'm just trying to break it down for everybody here. All right. So, his, he does not come by his priesthood because of some lineage. And it says in Psalm 110 that you will be a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And that idea of Melchizedek having a forever priesthood also has this idea that Melchizedek's priesthood lives on and on and on. So 7.3 might be a little speculative, but it lands in Scripture. So 
He is without father, without mother, or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. And in this way, he resembles the Son of God who continues as a priest forever. So the important thing is that Melchizedek does not depend on some human passing institution who's prone to corruption. I mean, look, I, it breaks my heart to see, even in the evangelical world, how there are pastors that might become rich or wealthy on the backs of people that they maybe spiritually abuse. Man, it hurts my soul. I mean, even when you read in the, in the book of 1 Samuel, the book, Eli, who Samuel comes in after, he has two sons that they like, they, they're corrupt. They, they make women give sexual favors for their priestly services. And you look at that and God's like, no way. I need to reform this. And even today, I think it, it's not, we're not so far away from that. It's so difficult to think about. What we need is access to God without some corrupt human being giving us access to God. And what the author of Hebrews is going to say is, there is a way Jesus is going to provide access to God in an enduring way without corruption. And your salvation is not dependent on someone opening the door for you, no one opening the door for you, except for Jesus. Come! Come and draw near because Jesus has given you an enduring access with integrity. We no longer have to be dependent on an institution that can fall on human fallenness. He goes on to say, Hebrews 7, 4, see how great this, was, this man was to whom Abraham, gave, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And this is important because there's a few things that Melchizedek does. He blesses Abraham, which is what priests do. Great, the greater blesses the lesser. And the book of Genesis is all about Abraham, but Melchizedek shows up and blesses Abraham. The greater blesses the lesser. And then it says that Abraham, that he pays tithes, he gives a tenth of everything that he got back in the spoils, he gives that to Melchizedek. Only the greater receives tithes from the lesser. And this is what the argument of Hebrews is going to be, that Melchizedek, for one reason or another, Abraham, who is the patriarch of our faith, has to be blessed by the greater, Melchizedek. Has to offer tribute to the greater, Melchizedek. And the argument then is, and hang with me, the argument is then that Levi, who, where the priesthood comes from in the Torah, is present biologically in Abraham when Abraham pays tithes and is blessed. Therefore, Melchizedek is greater than Levitical priests. Are you with me? This is chapter 7. Like, this is the, this is the point. Now, the whole point is this. Jesus he says this, and look at 7, uh, 13, talking about Jesus. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, that's Judah, from which no one has ever served at the altar. So Jesus, in the historical Jesus, does not have Levitical lineage. 
He comes from the tribe of Judah. And so, the author needs to identify a priesthood that is not dependent on Levitical lineage. Melchizedek. And he's going to say, Jesus is king, and Jesus is a greater high priest. This is the argument. Jesus is the greater high priest. All right. And then in 715, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement like a lineage concerning bodily descent, but based on the power of an indestructible life. Melchizedek's priesthood is not based on who your mom and dad were. His priesthood is based on, hey, whoever has an indestructible life can be a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And Jesus, because he raises, he is raised from the dead, he is able to be a priest because he has an indestructible life. All right. Now, why? (laughs) You're like, this is all great trivia, Pastor Craig. Why is this important? Why is it important? Now, here's why it's important, okay? The book of Hebrews has three major movements in it, three traveling movements. The first movement is the movement into the rest of God, the Sabbath rest of God. We read about it in chapters 3 and 4, that there's a Sabbath rest for God. There remains a Sabbath rest for God. Don't stop. And the, pro- the people on the, the 12 spies on the edge of the promised land, they stopped on the verge of the rest. You need to go in. The first movement is to go into the rest of God. The last movement in the book is the movement into the city of God, the final destination, that you are in the land of your sojourn and you live as an exile like Abraham did. You're looking for the city of God, but it's not here. But eventually you will arrive at the city of God. Go to the city of God. That's the third movement. We are in the middle of the second movement, which is this. We stand outside of the presence of God, outside of the temple, outside of the holy place, outside of the courtyard, outside, even as Gentiles, we are outsiders. The second movement is the movement into the presence of God. And in the Old Testament, the only people who were allowed to move all the way into the presence of God. Look, if you were a Gentile, you could come in and around the temple into the court of the Gentiles. But if you wanted to make it further in, you had to be Israel, Israelite. And if you wanted to be further in, women, you had to stay out. Slaves, you had to stay out. Only men, free men, could go into the next level. And then the next level, you had to be a priest or a Levite to go in. Levites helped to serve. Priests were trained, right? And then the next step into the holy place, only priests could go. Levites stay out. And then the next step was to go into the holy of holies. I'm running out of stage. The the holy of holies, and only the high priest could go in, and he could only go in once a year. And what the author of Hebrews is going to say, we are going to move into the holiest of holies, into the very presence of God. That is your job right now. It's to move, journey into the holy place. And in order to go into that place, you need someone to make a way. Because look, everyone else who's gone into that place, they feared for their lives. There are stories in the Old Testament about priests going into the holy place and they did one wrong thing, boom, dead. I I only imagine that they just had to wait another year 
to go in. Hey, when you go in this next year to offer a sacrifice, make sure you pull the other priest out, right? (laughs) Pull the dead guy out. There were also traditions where they would tie ropes around priests, so if they went in and fell over dead, like, and the little bell, like, ring the bell as long as you're alive. Like, ring the bell. If we hear the bell, we'll know. If it stops, we'll just pull the rope and drag you out because we don't want to die too. Like, there's all this fear about going into the Holy of Holies. And if you're going to make that journey from outside to in, you need someone to make a way. Look at 619. And here's, this is the second movement. And this is, I, I want to I land on this today. The movement into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God, that's what the author is setting up. And we're going to spend two more weeks on this, this movement. He thinks it's important. In 619, 619, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul, a hope that enters into the holy place behind the curtain. 620, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever according to Melchizedek. Here's the thing. When Jesus goes in, to the presence of God, is he afraid? No. He's the son of God and he has the power of an indestructible life. He will go into the presence of God as a son. He will not be afraid. He will be victorious. But it doesn't just say he will go in. He goes in as a forerunner, as a precursor, as the first of many Hebrews is arguing that Jesus is the true high priest, not a, not a Levite, but having much more stringent qualifications. He's gone into the presence of God where he's accomplished something on our behalf and he continues to accomplish it. We common folk, without priestly blood, defiled by sin, impure, unclean, we are going to be able to go. We're only the exclusive elite high priests have ever gone before. And we will not go in with fear. We will go in with confidence because of our faith in Jesus. Access to God the Father. Invitation by God the Father. Look at 725. 725. And this is where we're going to land. It says, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Let me read that again. This is talking about Jesus. Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for him. It says, he, is, he saves to the uttermost. Also, another way to translate it, he saves completely. Another, one of the commentaries that I was reading this week, it means that he saves to the nth degree. And what that means is, whatever it is that you need saving from, Jesus will save you. 
Whatever it is, because some of you might be like, well, you just don't, he just doesn't know what I have done or what has been done to me. He just doesn't know me. No. He is able to save to the nth degree, insert N, whatever you need. He is able to do it. Power of an indestructible life. King, priest, son of God, able to save. And it means you do not go in with fear, you go in with confidence because you go in behind Jesus. That's the gospel. Yes, aware of my need, you have needs. Become aware of your needs and awake to God's grace for you. What what greater hope can we have as we go into any day that we become aware of our need and awake to the grace of God, that God has made a way in to the nth degree. Those who draw near to God through him, the movement is toward God. And again, this is the other thing. We're not standing still. We're not like the Exodus generation. We're not, the, the, the call is not to stand still or to move away. The call is to draw near, to go on the journey, to follow Jesus into the holy of holies, into the presence of God. That is the directional call. And it just is a matter of a check. Like, just a check, and I'm not, there's no, there's no judgment here, but just to do the, the work of, of the diagnostic. Am I moving toward God? Am I trying to become more and more aware of his presence in my life? Am I drawing near? That's the journey of Hebrews. And I think sometimes we might think, yeah, Jesus died for me in the past, and that's great. But the author of Hebrews is like, no, 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 no. He continually lives to make intercession for them. Jesus continues, continues to intercede on your behalf even now, even today, even tomorrow. He will continue to intercede on your behalf. We do not go in with fear. Our faith, our hope, it says that our hope is like a sure and steadfast anchor. The irony is that anchor moves us into the direction of God. It's the confidence that we are given with our faith in Jesus. Why Melchizedek? Because the author wants everyone to know your hope is sure. It's not based on a Levitical priesthood or a Levitical sacrifice. It is based on the power of an indestructible life who constantly lives to intercede on your behalf and has gone in as a forerunner and now beckons you, come with me, come talk to my Father. He wants to see you. He rejoices that you come. You don't have to tie a rope around your waist that you'll be struck dead in his presence. Come. And the author of Hebrews spends a chapter on Melchizedek because he wants to hammer that point home. 